Amen. Let's be seated. So one more quick reminder. Nobody feel bad about this, please. But just a safety precaution. Uh, we do have that heater in the nursery. And sometimes we use it, sometimes we don't. But it is an electric heater. An older electric heater, uh, which means fire danger. I was just walking by it a little bit and I smelled something burning. And it smelled like burned car seat. And it was our car seat. Um, it's a little ways away. I don't think it would have caught on fire, but it just reminded me to mention uh, those of you that are in there. Keep try to keep things away from it if it's on. We don't want we don't want a fire where it's not supposed to be. So I'll just throw that out there. I think we all know that, but just as a friendly reminder, if you're walking by and smell something burning, don't feel feel free to look in and make sure uh, that it's not something burning. Oh, all right, uh, our beginning text will start in uh, Matthew, in the passage that was just read in your hearing. Once again, I've mentioned uh, the last couple of weeks, we're going to take a little bit of time. Uh, I'm thinking four weeks. In fact, I'm trying for four weeks uh, to focus on the subject of biblical evangelism. And it's so important when I even say that to make sure that we have right expectations Now, some of you, when I make these statements, have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay, just bear with me. Some of you do, depending on where you've been in your Christian life. Uh, Some of you have been through scenarios where we are going to teach on evangelism means two things. It means we're basically training you how to be salespeople, how to force things on people who frankly may not want it, how to not take no for an answer, how to be a manipulator, and then how to brag about how many people repeated a prayer. And the other thing that might mean is guilt trips thrown out there. If you don't knock enough doors this Saturday... God, frankly, has very little use for you. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying all door-to-door work is bad, but when our mindset is that equals evangelism. Maybe I'm sensitive to that because that was where I started my Christian life. That was where I started my ministry training with that mindset. So I want to repeat that. I said it last week, I want to say it again. These messages are neither of those two things. Neither one of those. Religious hucksters, proud of persuasive ability, and frankly puffed up with human pride at their ability to be a salesperson. One of the things that shocked me, I used to think I was a good evangelist. Oh, I could get, I could get professions of faith. I mean, I remember... Group of teenagers one time, I got a flat tire. And I got out of the car and I thought, the Lord has a purpose in this. And I walk across a parking lot and there's this group of teens there. Remember hacky sacks were a big thing? There's probably eight or nine of them. And I go walk right in the middle of their circle. And I said, all right, how many of you are ready to face God if you die right now? That's a weird way to start a conversation. None of them were. Oh, every one of them prayed that prayer. How many of them were truly converted? Zero. 
They didn't understand the gospel. They understood the self-centered aspect. Sure, I don't want to burn in hell. Who does? There was no committing of themselves to Christ. Ironically, when I left that, and yes, I'm sorry to say I became a car salesman for a while. Now, if you are one, don't get offended. But one of the things that shocked me is the same principles I employed at evangelism work selling cars. That bothered me. Friends, flesh can manipulate. Powerful personalities can get up here and slide across the platform, walk across chairs, have the audience laughing and then crying and get people to come forward. Human personality does not bring people to Christ ultimately. And then the guilt trip part. (laughs) Is evangelism important? Yes, but... Me getting up here and saying, do more, do more, do more, do more is not going to make us have an evangelistic heart. It's not where it comes from. So this is neither one of those two things. Now, last week we were in that well-known passage in Matthew 28. We were kind of addressing the question, what exactly is the Great Commission? And again, the Great Commission is not merely gospel preaching. That is part of it. It's a misnomer to say evangelistic work is the Great Commission. Evangelistic work is part of the Great Commission. Uh, The Great Commission is is broader than that. Uh, The Great Commission is not uh, gaining and counting professions of faith. I mentioned I try to be careful with the missionaries that come through and make it plain to them. We're not interested in people who are going to tell me they had 3,412 people saved last year and baptized three. I will say bluntly, something is wrong with their methodology in that. Very wrong. So, racking up empty professions is not the Great Commission. Neither is it uh, leaving babes in Christ to just wallow in their immaturity. The Great Commission there is the full cycle. Go, reach, baptize, teach. It's the full cycle of preaching, or we might say sharing the gospel, as long as we understand that rightly. Men uh, being made disciples, actually truly converted, not just they want to go to heaven. But they want God. What do you find when a soul is born of God? What are the evidences? All of a sudden, the Word of God means something to them. All of a sudden, being around God's people means something to them. You know, they find that they want to be in church. They find that sin bothers them. They find a growing discernment and a hunger and eyes being open to divine truth. They find a care to their fellow men who are perishing. These are some of the marks of conversion. There are more. So, the gospel is preached. Souls are born of God. Then they follow the Lord in baptism, which isn't the gospel. doesn't take away sin. But again, in their day, baptism, I think baptism accomplishes things that we don't know. There's, There's some questions I don't personally have answered. And I probably won't ever on this earth. 
But it was their public declaration that I'm turning my back on my old life. I'm turning my back on the heathen gods. I am renouncing. You know when uh, it's not said so much anymore, but you remember what used to be said at the marriage altar? One of the statements, what was it? Forsaking all others. Friends, baptism was a public forsaking of all others. It was to be married to Jesus Christ and say, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then beyond that, it was teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. It's the ongoing work of discipleship. And again, that does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a one-year discipleship course. What we're doing here this morning is part of the Great Commission. Uh, Part of what we're learning here is to observe all things God has commanded us. That's the ongoing work of discipleship. So the Great Commission is, it's that whole picture. And uh, by the way, like a wheel that's been rolling down through history. And uh, can God save you without human instrumentation? Sure, he can. But his general pattern... If you're here in your sane spiritual mind this morning, if you can say definitively, I am in Christ. Humanly, there were gospel preachers who were used to bring people to conversion, who were then baptized, who were discipled to maturity, and as they were being discipled, they preached the gospel, leading to salvation and baptism and discipleship to maturity, which led to preaching the gospel, and that's recycled over and over and over. It's like the ball's passed to us. Keep it rolling. Now, next week, Lord willing... We're going to talk about case studies and Bible methodology. And again, we can't cover it all. One of the frustrations for me going through this is trying to keep it brief. Believe me, there are so many rabbit trails. Not even rabbit trails. That's, that, that insinuates is not important. There's a lot of important byways we could go down that I, I don't think we have the time. We want to try to keep to the main pillar, so I am trying my best to do that. But next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about case studies and Bible methodology. How? the Lord and the New Testament preachers dealt with the souls of men. Not what does some book by some guru who claims however many converts say how you should do it. I uh, I remember one book. I carry books on my shelf. Sometimes if they frustrate me enough, I'll write heresy on the spine. If you're ever in my personal library, just know there's a lot of books I don't agree with. But one of the ones that bugs me the most is by a well-known evangelist in Baptist circles, and he's got his 13-step program. Follow these 13 steps. It's guaranteed to lead to salvation. And of course, it's not till step number four that we lean on the Holy Spirit's power. That should be a red flag. It's when to nod, only ask questions with positive answers, look worried right here. Shake your head right here. I'm, it's pure manipulation. It's frustrating. Did they do that in the Scriptures? I, I, let me tell you something. I was very newly saved, and I was taught some of this stuff. And examining it with the Scriptures was almost laughable if it wasn't so serious. 
You compare it to the Word of God and it blows it out of the water. All right, why is it so popular then? It works. It secures apparent results. And men can now say, I had this many converts. Aren't I spiritual? But I give all the glory to God for giving me such amazing skills. No. So we want to look at what does the Bible actually teach? Beyond that, Lord willing, it'll be practicality. How we're going to go, how we're going to apply scriptural principles as a church family going forward into this year and this work. But before that, this morning, I want to take at least one message. Maybe we won't get through it. We'll try to deal with these kind of questions. How can I become more evangelistic the right way? Or uh, from where does a real burden for souls come from? Is it my natural charisma? Is it taking some class? Does that make me now qualified to bring souls to Christ? Is it my sheer persuasion that will men, win men to the Lord's side of things? Or is it external motivations? Pull myself up by my bootstraps. Force myself, fake it till I make it. Or maybe if I just listen to enough sermons that pound me over the head about how pathetic I am, maybe I'll just go get zealous for Jesus. We're going to at least look at some principles that give answer to these questions. I want to start here, though, at the beginning by stating this. We have to have a balanced perspective on this. I'm not negating the fact that every Christian person is given a command to preach the gospel. I'm not saying ignore the fact we're commanded. We are commanded. And now some of the how we'll get to later. Or I'm not negating the fact that sometimes our obedience is simply choosing to do right regardless of how I feel. That's a consistent element in the Christian life. I mean, will, will I always feel like preaching the gospel? I mean... Someday I'd love to reach a plateau where that's the case, but it's not the case now. God opens a clear doorway. Am I always going to feel like, am I always going to be glad that JWs show up at my door? Probably not. So there is that element of understanding what Paul says in Romans 7. I find a law, a general principle, when I would do good, evil is present with me. So there's a sense of, the minute we're determined to obey God, whether it's gospel preaching or church attendance or any other thousand things that we're supposed to do and we know, that missile from the wicked one comes. You don't want to do that. That may not go away. I'm not negating the fact the first two words of the Great Commission are go ye. That is a command. Or that in the spiritual armor passage, Ephesians 6, we're told to put, arm, put on the armor. That's a choice. And again, it's feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There's an element of saying with Abraham's servant, I being in the way, the Lord led me. So I'm on one side not advocating go home and hide until God zaps you with some lightning bolt of zeal. But don't raise your hand. Is anybody here bothered? that you don't care more. I mean, let's say we just took 
five minutes right now. We're not going to, but let's say if we took five minutes, I said, all right, let's think about all the Bible descriptions of hell you can remember. And let's, let's just think about it. Let's think about that somewhere beneath your feet and mine right now, there was a powerful enough microphone. You would hear shrieks of torment and blasphemy against God that would give you nightmares for the rest of your life. And then we could ask ourselves the question, why don't I care more? I mean, I think a lot of us would say, I want to desire the will of God more. I want to want to obey Him. But sometimes it's like there's this, uh, this cold, wet blanket of apathy. Maybe you're asking, how, how can I bear more fruit for the Lord's sake? Again, there's a lot to that question. We'll just talk about some. But can God use the likes of me and you to actually rescue? I'm not talking about shallow professions. To actually rescue a doomed rebel, turn them into the child of God. Maybe somebody's asking, what, uh, what happened to the zeal I used to have? Some of you know the experience you're saved in adulthood. It's like there's a flame lit in your soul. And you may look back and say, you know, I can say it about me. I had a lot of zeal without any knowledge. And frankly, I think I, I probably repelled a whole lot more people than I attracted in those days. And sometimes I ask myself, what, what happened to that? I want to at least make an attempt to help us to gain some of this scripturally. I think we have to begin here. Again, I'm going to mention several passages. We're not going to turn to most of these. What is God's heart towards perishing men? How does God think of them? I think we can say dogmatically, God possesses an infinitely evangelistic heart. Now, you know I'm speaking metaphorically. God's not made up of parts like we are. But I'm saying God's divine heartbeat, if you could listen to the pulse, is one of going after his creation. You'll recall that in Genesis 3, after our first parents fell into sin, immediately, immediately, God slaughters that animal. First blood they'd ever seen. And He wraps them in that garment. He takes away their fig leaf aprons, their pathetic attempt to cover their sin themselves. And He removes that and He Close them with a coat of an animal showing something innocent must die for the sins of the guilty. And then he gives them a promise that someday the Savior's going to come into the world and he's going to crush that serpent's head. And someday he was going to come and fulfill all those animal sacrifices. And of course, we know God himself was going to come and die on that cross. Ezekiel 33, 1. We talked about it in Sunday school. Make sure you don't unwittingly divide God up into Old and New Testament. 
He doesn't change. God didn't become merciful in New Testament times. What was his heart in the Old Testament? As I live, saith the Lord God, as surely as I exist, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil way. Why will ye die? You hear that? It's not merely cold and calculated. This is passionate. This is caring. John 3.16, we know it, don't we? For God so loved, this is the manner in which God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it was that same Son of God, as He walked this earth, that said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. His weeping over the state of Jerusalem only underscored that statement. I imagine a little bit uh, the effect that may have had on His disciples. Who may have wondered what God's heart was like when He had to wipe out a city. <laughs> oh, here's the Son of God, and he's, he's on a hill, and He's looking at this capital of Jerusalem, and He cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. which killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thee under my wings. Or I would have gathered thee like a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. And ye would not. Tears running down that fleshly face of his. Before departing the earth after his resurrection, he promised to send another Comforter. That's another of the same kind. He said in John 16 that that Comforter, the Holy Ghost, when He is come, He will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And He'll show the world what's wrong, what's right, and that there's a coming day of accountability to their Maker. And the Holy Spirit is always impressing on the hearts of men those things in a very general sense worldwide. Why? that they might be saved. The Apostle Paul picked up the same theme about this heart of God in 1 Timothy 2. He says, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter picked up the same theme. He said, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. God hasn't waited this long because He has nothing better to do. He's long-suffering to us. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Even at the close of Scripture, just as the door of written revelation is about to shut for good, the Spirit and the Bride, the Holy Spirit and the church age saints, as the door shuts, are saying, Come, come, come. So let nobody doubt that God's heart is an evangelistic heart. If you know yourself at all, you know that if He didn't come after you, you would not be saved. There's no way. All right, now from that logical principle, what logical principle comes from that? I think all of us would say that it's only by nearness to that heart of God that this zeal can be truly reproduced in us. I mean, think for a minute. Every truly good thing comes from God in the universe. Amen? Does any joy exist, real joy, that didn't come from Him ultimately? 
Any love, any peace, nothing. No beauty. Nothing good but what that came from Him. It's distance from God that's the source of mankind's deep issues, and it's only nearness to God that can heal them properly. Now, it's true. There are natural counterparts to mercy, love, and compassion that all men possess just being made in the image of God. Believe it or not, even Adolf Hitler had mercy a little somewhere. I remember reading an article about Saddam Hussein after his death. And uh, you might say the merciful artistic side of Saddam Hussein, if you can say that about a savage butcher, but there, there was a little there. Just by virtue of being made in the image of God, there's a natural counterpart, a lost mother. She may utterly reject Christ, but generally she's going to care for her child. That's what the Bible calls a natural affection. But those human counterparts fall far, far below the supernatural attributes of God. Most of us know the word love in the Bible when it's the Greek word agape. It's self, it's the highest kind. That's self-sacrificing charity, which is an attribute of God. Listen, you and I can only be conduits of, we can never possess. We've heard of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, etc., What does it mean, fruit of the Spirit? It's the evidence of the Spirit's control in a Christian's life. I mean, if somebody's not demonstrating self-sacrificing charity, genuine joy, a sense of peace, the Spirit's not in control of their life. That's what that's saying. So it's submission to the Spirit of God that produces that fruit. Now, let's say you and I memorize that ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Every day you memorize them. I need to do these today. I need to do these today. Do you know that will never, ever, ever produce them in you? They're produced because they're attributes of the indwelling Spirit of God as we walk in submission to His will, as we walk in fellowship with Him, as we cultivate the mindset, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I am Your servant. Then we become conduits of those things which we can't produce on our own. And when Jesus walked those shores of Galilee, what we read in Matthew 4, and called those two brawny fishermen to be his disciples. By the way, that wasn't the first time he ran into them. Remember, it was Andrew that originally brought Peter to Christ. Well, now here comes the call to discipleship, to really follow him. And he uses an interesting phrase as he just walks by them and he says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Notice he didn't say, hey, go find some men to preach at, and uh, then you can be my follower. What's, What's the goal? What's the focus there? Follow me. And in that following, as they're walking in his 
figurative footsteps as they're being discipled by him. I will make, literally fashion you into fishers of men. What's the focus? Follow me. And I will fashion you into a fisher of men. Uh, John, in fact, flip ahead to John. Let's just lay our eyes on this one. Very, very familiar. This should be one of the more precious passages to every child of God. Not because it's red letters, by the way. Precious words, but Christ's words aren't more inspired than the rest of the Bible. But precious words because of the far-reaching effect of what is said here and how it ties into the New Testament epistles. John chapter 15, of course, the upper room just before the Lord is crucified. And look what he says, by the way, verse 1, I am the true vine in contrast to the fakes that are out there. My father's the husbandman. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he taketh away. That's speaking of a, of a, of a saved person who refuses to submit his stiff neck to God. There's a point where the Lord removes them from the earth. But those that are willing to bear fruit, he purges, he prunes so that they can bear more. But look at verse 4. Abide in me, live in me, dwell in me, and I in you. Just like the branch can't bear fruit by itself, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Now friends, it has to be conceded that the flesh can do a whole lot that appears profitable to men. Do you realize it's possible to have a church building and parking lot that takes up eight acres? And to have 4,000 people all crying out here? And for me to write best-selling books, speak at conferences, and still do nothing of eternal value that's possible. He's not saying you won't have any apparent results. He's saying you can't do anything of real everlasting import without abiding in me. Unless I do the work through you, it's not going to get done. I see in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and as your mind is saturated with the Word of God, what happens? Prayer. Consistent answers to prayer become a way of life. Verse 8, the Father wants us to bear much fruit. He wants to be glorified by us bearing fruit. He wants you to bear fruit, and you can when you abide in Christ. Of verse 10, there's a sense of the Father's love as you abide in Christ. And verse 11, there's a, a fullness of joy that He wants to give. How, how does all that happen, though? A cultivated, consistent fellowship and submission to Christ Himself. When that becomes the singular focus of life, that branch is tied into the vine. It becomes a conduit. Remember the Lord said, He that believeth in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What did he mean by that? As you walk with me, 
I will cause rivers of healing, of spiritual blessing to come out of your inmost being and affect other lives. That's what he was saying. Now, fruit has a lot of, there's a lot of fruits in the New Testament, but one of those, one of those is souls coming to Christ. You remember when the Lord said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? What did he mean by that? He wasn't talking about a life of wealth and comfort, but he was saying a nearness to him produces a sense of him carrying the heavy end of every single load. I ran across a quote by John Henry Jowett, the British preacher. I want to read it to you on that verse. He says, The fatal mistake for the believer is to seek to bear life's load in a single collar. God never intended a man to carry his burden alone. Christ, therefore, deals only in yokes. A yoke is a neck harness for two, and the Lord Himself pleads to be one of the two. He wants to share the labor of any galling task. The secret of peace and victory in the Christian life is found in putting off the taxing collar of self and accepting the Master's relaxing yoke. How about when John said in 1 John 5.3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And this next statement is something. His commandments are not grievous. That means burdensome. A frustration, a weight. He says God's commandments aren't burdensome. I bet if you've been a Christian for a while, every one of you know what it's like to hear that statement and think, if I'm perfectly honest... I find some of his commandments very burdensome. What's the problem? Well, somewhere, the soul hasn't broke down and submitted to God. Somewhere, there's some spiritual non-conductor. Somewhere, fellowship with him has been broken, and now I'm chafing against his good word, which is a gift from heaven. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5.24, he said, the love of Christ constraineth us. I'm bound together. I'm motivated to tireless service by the love of Christ flowing to me and through me. So Paul had entered so deeply into this heart of God, he could honestly say in Romans 9, and he, he begins this phrase by giving a fourfold assurance that he's not just saying this. It's, it's one of the most amazing statements by any preacher in Scripture. He says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. So a fourfold repetition. These are not just words. And I don't know that many men in history could ever make this statement. Moses could. We see similar words from Moses when he said, blot me out of thy book. Paul says, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was saying, if I could pick hell for myself, To spare them from it, I would do it. I can't say that. I couldn't say it honestly. 
Paul had to grow into that mindset by a drawing near to Christ. And I don't know that few men, like I said, I doubt very many have ever been able to honestly say that. But it wasn't merely human effort that can do it. All right, thirdly, if you are saved, there are two offices that you hold with respect to the world around you, and here's what they are. Ambassador and priest. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. And then he says, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you be reconciled to God. That's amazing language. He's telling this church in Corinth, we and my those with me, we're ambassadors for Christ. And it's like God is begging you right through us. God wants to use you and I as His mouthpiece so much that it's like God Himself is pleading with the world to turn to Christ through our mouth. We are ambassadors. We're commissioned as sent ones to be God's mouthpiece to a perishing world. But what about that other one? What about the office of a priest? Are there priests today? Well, not in the sense of being a mediator between God and men as though helping their salvation in some sense uh, efficaciously. Paul says there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So every religious system that has an official priesthood elevated over the people is actually destroying the gospel and sending people to hell. Yes, I said that, and yes, I meant that. But... 1 Peter 2.9, this is just one of many passages, and I wish I could develop it further, but we'll just touch on it. But ye, Peter says, speaking of Christian people, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, without fully taking time to develop the idea of a New Testament priest, what's the difference between an ambassador and a priest? In this setting, an ambassador is one who talks to men about God. A priest is one who talks to God about men. One of my more favorite authors is Lewis Berry Schaefer. By the way, as a whole, I recommend his book, True Evangelism. It goes in a lot more depth to this, and I agree with his main points. But here's what he says. Like the Aaronic priesthood, that's the Old Testament priesthood under the law, the New Testament priest is born into his position. He's constituted a priest unto God as part of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. His position and his privileges, therefore, begin with his new birth into the nature and family of God. Now listen to this. It is most important to emphasize the truth that every believer is a priest unto God, though he may never intelligently exercise his glorious privilege. The full realization of this position, that of a New Testament priest, so far as it affects prayer, is one of the greatest needs among believers today. It is more than a belief in the general effectiveness of prayer. It is to be able to say, I believe that God will do His greatest works solely 
in answer to my prayer. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit as an indwelling presence in Acts chapter 2, it was a one-time event. Disciples have been told in Luke 24 and elsewhere, tarry at Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, that exact event on the day of Pentecost will never be duplicated, but there is a vital principle there. One of the things that taught them, it was only with an entire dependence on heavenly power, namely the Holy Spirit, that souls could ever be won and God's work would ever really go forward. How did those men go from cowardly, Christ-denying failures to 11 mostly uneducated men who were said by their enemies to have turned the world upside down? There's only one way. They were conduits of divine power. You can be persuasive and have all the gospel facts memorized and you think be able to answer every single question, have brilliant and flawless logical response to difficult questions, even secure outward professions of faith and the energy of the flesh. I don't have time to tell you, most of you can name names. There's been many charlatans exposed as satanic phonies that built big followings of people that claim to love Jesus. I don't buy for a minute that was the Spirit's power racking up those numbers when they were living in that kind of God-denying sin. That's a bunch of baloney. They built big enterprises Call it what you want, but it's really not a church. But you know what you cannot do without divine power? You cannot raise the spiritually dead. You and I cannot give genuine conviction of sin. You've seen people, haven't you? I have many, many times. Somebody seems interested in the Scriptures and they're studying the Word of God and you spend hours and you spend hours plowing and plowing and you're going through the law and you're laying a foundation of the Old Testament and there's a mental ascent to these facts. There's a, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that's nice. But what's conspicuously missing is an arresting sense of their own doom. The utter weight of their crimes against the God of heaven and not somebody forcing them from the outside, listen, but spiritual pressure from the inside forcing them to cry out, what must I do to be saved? You don't produce that. And neither do I. Neither does a book or a seminar or a personality or stories. We can't open satanically blinded eyes to the glory of Christ and produce a new birth and make disciples. Really can't miss the connection in Acts 1. We are almost done, I promise. 
What were they doing in, the, in that upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost? It says in Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. There was this ongoing prayer meeting, and what all they were praying about, we don't know, but I have a strong suspicion after what had happened, there was a pleading for the power of God. There was a, a praying for recognition of, they didn't know all that was coming at Pentecost. There was a pleading for eyes to be able to see when we're endued with power on high. And for God to break the hearts of men. And for God to proclaim Christ among these Jews that had crucified Him. And so there is a direct connection between those prayer meetings and, between, and what followed on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2.42, they're continuing steadfastly. And one of the things listed there conspicuously was prayer. There's a direct connection between that and fear came Upon every soul. Can I tell you one common element in real revival, the real kind historically? Do you know what it is? There's this inexplicable prevailing sense of the majesty and the terror of a holy God that's been offended. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. You can read in that passage. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. What was that saying? There was a holy terror in Jerusalem after that, and people were afraid to lightly join that church because they knew that was a place where sin was exposed. Now contrast that to the ear irreverent trash today of trying to drag God down to man's level, it's no wonder nobody's convicted of sin. The party animal Jesus, the God with the ponytail from the shack doesn't produce conviction. It's only the God of the Bible that produces that. So they pray, fear falls upon every soul. It was on the way to a planned prayer meeting that Peter healed that lame man in Acts 3 and got to preach the gospel again. In Acts 4, it was after earnest prayer for boldness with one accord that the building actually physically shook. I think we should continue this next week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.